Welcome to Leveraging the Laboratory, a Mayo Clinic Laboratories podcast for administrators, outreach managers, and laboratory professionals to learn how best to leverage and optimize the laboratory for patients, clients, and staff. I'm your host, Jane Hermanson, Outreach Manager at Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Joining me today is Dr. Nikki Bauman, the PhD Director for our Central Clinical Laboratory and Central Processing within the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic. Our discussion topic today is quality. In our podcast episode number nine, we talked with Kate Pierce, who is a quality management coordinator within Mayo Clinic Laboratory Specimen Operations. And we talked with her about managing the pre-analytic aspects of specimen handling and data entry. Today, we are going to discuss what happens when those outreach specimens actually make it to the laboratory. So Dr. Bauman, please tell me a little bit about yourself and your role as a lab leader within Mayo Clinic's DLMP. Thank you so much, Jane, and thank you for this invitation. It's very appreciated. As you mentioned, I am the co-director of the Central Clinical Laboratory and Central Processing Laboratory at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So we are the central lab that receives approximately 12,000 blood and urine specimens from patients being seen at Mayo Clinic each day. If you look at our volume, about 85% of our test volume is from our local patient population, and the other 15% is from Mayo Clinic laboratory clients. So we are most similar to the general chemistry, immunoassay, heme, and coag labs that many of our reference lab clients have in their home institutions. I am a board-certified clinical chemist. I've been at Mayo Clinic for 13 years. And in addition to being a clinical lab director, I'm also the vice chair of quality for the Department of Lab Medicine and Pathology. I also direct the process innovation through automation or the PETA laboratory, where we aim to drive process innovation by increasing automation and robotics in the clinical labs. I've always had a passion for clinical lab quality, and I focus on improving quality in these high volume, highly automated laboratories like the Central Processing Lab. Wow, that's that's a lot, 12,000 specimens a day. I used to work in one of our labs and we, were, we thought we were a pretty big deal and we got about 3,000 specimens a day. So that's a pretty busy operation. So as the technical director of the laboratory, you're the recipient of specimens that impact the scientific work that you do in your departments. Tell me about the quality challenges that you face regarding those specimens that you receive in your department. I think as laboratorians, we all know the phrase garbage in, garbage out when discussing specimen quality. And this is a concept that is highly appreciated by laboratorians. We know that we need quality specimens to provide quality results. However, I also think it may be one of the most underappreciated concepts for those outside of the laboratory whether that's a patient or a clinician. And that's why I believe that the lab really needs to be accountable and only report clinically valid and analytically accurate results whenever possible. We are the only stakeholders in this process who can assess specimen integrity, and that really is our ultimate responsibility. 
Absolutely. Well, I love the phrase garbage in, garbage out, because it's no good if you actually, if it's not a good specimen. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think they've done their job if they've collected, sent it on to the lab. But the role of the lab professional is so, so important. So if you think to the 12,000 specimens that you receive every day, what's the number one problem, the number one issue that you face, and what are you doing about it? Well, like most core chemistry laboratories, our number one reason for specimen rejection in the core laboratory is hemolysis. This is universal throughout the lab community. In our laboratory, we have analyte-specific hemolysis thresholds, and we reject specimens where the hemolysis threshold is exceeded. So for the vast majority of patients, if we recollect those samples via venipuncture, it will yield a suitable specimen. However, in some critically ill patients, it's challenging to collect a non-hemolyzed specimen, even when you recollect, and it actually may be challenging even to do venipuncture. So we have developed a unique special collection and handling process for these patients. It's quite manual, but it does effectively reduce hemolysis in this patient population. And I think it's a unique example because it illustrates that even in high volume laboratories, we still need to be able to accommodate the exceptions and the manual processes that will help the patients who need them. Oh, absolutely. And I can remember some patients, no matter how many times you draw them, they're still going to be hemolyzed. So you mentioned having analyte-specific hemolysis thresholds. And when I was in the lab, we had to use our eyeballs and judge for things like hemolysis. And some people were a little more strict than others. So how do you handle this in the modern lab today? Yes, well, thankfully, the days of having the hemolysis chart hanging on the wall are gone, and that's a good thing. We really put our total lab automation and the ability to have automated serum indices and our middleware rules to work, where we have analytes where hemolysis has a significant impact on results, and we all know those analytes, potassium, AST, lactate dehydrogenase. We have scientifically evaluated the impact of hemolysis on testing, and then we're using those data to establish both analyte and concentration-dependent thresholds for hemolysis. So the thresholds are determined based on thresholds above which results would be impacted in a way that affects clinical interpretation. So we allow a little wiggle room for imprecision, but if the change is going to impact the result in a way that it will affect clinical interpretation, we consider that to be above the analyte-specific threshold. So by running serum indices on every single specimen that comes through the automation line, and then using middleware rules that are based on if-then logic, we can actually completely automate the detection of hemolysis and hold those results and prevent reporting results that would be inaccurate. And then of course, after those results are held, it would require manual technologist intervention, but the entire uh, detection and holding process is automated. And we can do the exact same procedure for both icterus and lipemia as well. 
Wow. So you're just taking that whole objective view away and really creating some strong criteria. That is fantastic. So what about when we have specimens that are incredibly precious, they might be irreplaceable. How do you make the best use of that specimen without making a compromise to patient care? Yes, that's a really important question. And while we strive to only report results on perfect samples, and we have a lot of processes and criteria for rejection, there definitely are rare cases where specimens are either repeatedly compromised or even irretrievable. And in those cases, I think it's really important to have a discussion with the provider about the results and the limitations of the results and also a very specific reporting comment that accompanies the results. And of course, the reason for that is that the provider will get some information, but you want something in the medical director that is trans in the medical record, excuse me, that's transferable to other providers. I always like to differentiate that as the lab, we should be providing interpretive information and not just a disclaimer. So that comment that we add should really add value and help the provider. Sure. So a disclaimer is really almost minimizing the value of that result and your interpretation is actually enhancing the value. I really like that differentiation. That's fantastic. Registration is now open for our 34th Outreach Conference. Leveraging the Laboratory, Dimensions of Outreach will be held in Chicago, Illinois, September 26th and 27th, 2023. For more information, please visit our mayocliniclabs.com website, click on Education, and then Conferences. I hope to see you there. So that's a whole lot. And you haven't even done the test yet. You're just getting the specimen and, and identifying whether or not it's adequate for testing. So what else comes into play when you're driving efficiency within a lab, particularly a lab on the scale of yours with the large volumes? I think it's really important to not let the fast pace and the chaotic nature and the high volume of an automated core lab prevent staff from doing the right thing. And that can be difficult. As I mentioned earlier, our central processing area handles over 12,000 specimens per day. So some of those specimens need special handling. Some of them need aliquoting prior to being delivered to the testing lab. And there may be a human inclination to batch the work or to work on multiple patient samples at a time to speed up the work, to multitask, but that will inevitably lead to errors. And our processing and aliquoting area in the central processing laboratory exclusively uses a single piece, single patient workflow. What that means is that they are only working on one patient sample at a time and to prevent mislabeling, to prevent a wrong aliquot being made, prevent distractions and possible human errors. And I think in the, this high volume setting, this in my mind is the one single intervention that processing areas can implement that will single-handedly reduce errors. Wow. You know, we think a lot about single piece flow as 
being more efficient from a workflow perspective, but it's really interesting to think about it from the error reduction as well. And it makes sense when you work on one thing, of course, you're, you're not going to be mixing it up with something else. So Dr. Bauman, you've done a lot of things to make sure that the specimen is absolutely perfect by the time it hits the testing instrumentation. And although we strive for perfection every time, sometimes stuff happens. So how do you handle the unexpected, whether it's large or small? And what do you consider and what can you do when things don't go as you plan? Yes, that is an excellent question and, and one that I have spent much of my career thinking about. As we gain efficiency and throughput in the clinical lab, we do face the risk that when an error occurs, it can very quickly impact numerous patient samples. So that's the dark side of high throughput, high efficiency, rapid turnaround time. And it is so important for labs to have robust error detection methods. So we want to be able to detect when something is going wrong. And I would ask a laboratorian, are you confident that your quality control and quality assurance processes will detect an issue? These are questions I ask myself and we ask ourselves in my laboratory. What types of issues can't be detected by QC? And what tools are we using to supplement traditional QC? So that's the first component is, are we set up to detect when something goes wrong? Because we want to detect it internally. I don't want to detect it by a clinician calling the lab and questioning a result. The second critical aspect is to have a response and recovery plan when something does go wrong because it is inevitable that at some point in time, there will be a testing issue or an instrument issue, and you need to have a plan of what you will do. So if there's an issue, do you have an established plan for what samples you will retest? Do you have criteria for when you will revi revise a result? Do you have tools for tracking and documenting those testing issues? And then do you follow up on these unexpected testing issues with formal root cause analysis or RCA and with corrective action and preventative action or CAPA? Wow, that's a lot of stuff. And when you talked about having a clinician giving you feedback on results that would be inaccurate, it's interesting because when I was in the lab, massively high volumes, once in a while, we'd get a, a phone call from a doctor and he would say, nothing specific guys, but I follow my calciums and phosphoruses on my patients very closely. And it just seems to me that your phosphoruses might be a little high. You might want to take a look at your instrument. And we looked and we realized we just had perhaps a half of a tenth of a slight drift in our quality control. And it had been trending that way, but it wasn't enough to be caught. But here we have a clinician and his gut instinct that actually get back would get back to us and say, I think you guys have a problem. So certainly I appreciate that, but it's not just enough to fix the one problem as you said, then to really look at the root cause and then work into the rest of the corrective and preventative actions. Lots of stuff <laughs> and at the tune of 12,000 a day, pretty busy. Yes, and Jane, I, I would just add, you, know, you brought up an excellent point um, with 
what a physician would consider clinically significant in their own patient population. We really want our quality assurance tools to detect those shifts and trends prior to when they would become clinically significant. I think that's the ultimate goal. And it's a challenge, but that is our ultimate goal. Exactly. But I was just so impressed. He watched these numbers that closely and could actually identify for us when there was something going on. So he was our canary in the gold mine. We really appreciated it. Well, I always like to close these podcast interviews with a rapid fire question. And I'll ask this one of you. If you had a magic wand and could improve quality along just one area, what would it be? Oh, Jane, I can't choose one area. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's a tough question. I think I would want to just encourage a culture of continuous improvement in all areas of the laboratory. As a lab director, looking back, I've never been afraid to look for things that are swept under the rug or pick up the rock and look underneath for additional issues or lessons to be learned. And I think it's a strength for us to have the ability to critically look at our own processes, put our pride aside, and critically appraise and identify weaknesses in our own workflows, in our own processes, uh, in our own systems. And I also think you need to have data to drive any improvements that you want to do. I'm a big advocate of data-driven solutions. I think that is what will get buy-in for a quality improvement initiative. And I think it's also what will give you a sustainable solution. The saying is used often in the quality world is you can't improve what you don't measure. And I always like to add that if we aren't measuring, we likely aren't improving. So I think my magic wand would be to make us all instill this culture of continuous improvement to be able to put our pride aside and critically evaluate what we could possibly be doing better and to always use that data. We have so much of it in the clinical lab, use our data to make ourselves better. Absolutely. And we know as we become better, guess who wins? The patient because they're going to get better care. And that's really the reason we're here. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Dr. Bauman. You've given us so much to think about today related to managing and maintaining quality within the lab, particularly in an area where you're receiving large amounts of specimens. So I hope that our audience also has gained some new ideas to implement in their own laboratories and allows them to provide the best quality service to their customers and to their patients. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And if you're interested in learning more about designing laboratory outreach operations and other best practices in laboratory outreach, please come to our Leveraging the Laboratory Conference. It is in Chicago, September 26th and 27th, 2023. We'd love to see you there. Thank you for listening to the Leveraging the Laboratory podcast from Mayo Clinic Laboratories. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. And until next time, we encourage you to continue to promote your community-based hospital laboratory. The needs of the patient come first.